Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'm here with my fellow host, Vincent M. Wales. And today, Vince and I will be talking to Dr. Laura Dabney. Dr. Dabney received her MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School and is a board-certified psychiatrist. And today, we're going to be discussing being selfish in relationships. Dr. Dabney, welcome to the show. Thank you. So nice to be here. Well, we are very, very happy to have you. So the first question that I want to ask you is, you know, narcissism is kind of one of those diagnosis de jours, I I, I believe, that we discussed uh, in in the preliminaries for this episode. And many people think that being selfish is narcissism. So how is being selfish in a relationship not narcissism? Well, first of all, I just want to remind people that the DSM has a long list of things you need to have to be a narcissist. But I really use selfish as sort of a tongue-in-cheek and play on words because when people come to me with a relationship problem, or really any emotional problem, they are typically very invested in talking about somebody else, their significant other, let's say. There'd be something wrong, there's something I can't do it with you, with him, her, whatever. And then I say, well, how is it making you feel or how is it impacting you? And they just stop. They typically are so afraid or have grown up to not know what they think or feel, or they're very, very invested in trying to get rid of certain feelings or thoughts. For instance, the top three are anger, sadness, and neediness. They really think they're not allowed to have those emotions. They spend a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to bury them. And it's that working around those emotions, not ever able to even acknowledge them in their own head, let alone say them, that keeps them from the intimacy that they want. So I kind of sit with them and say, well, what's keeping you from doing that? And how did this happen in your life? And they'll say, well, I don't want to be selfish and just think about myself. (laughs) Then we have a really actually a good time talking about, well, what's the difference between self-aware and selfish? And what's the difference between (laughs) taking a break and being lazy? And really get them, challenge them on all this. Why is being angry wrong? Because they have really, it's almost like a phobia. They just do not want to admit to these feelings. They do not want to have them. You can't have a relationship discussion until you know what you feel and you've given it some strong consideration and thought. You have to start with you. Um, as soon as you start a conversation with you need to change or you're doing something wrong or I, I, you know, I need you to stop doing that, people get defensive. But if you start with, I'm angry whenever you tell that story about me at every party, I need you to stop. People are much more invested or going to be much more compelled to change if it hurts you. If you're just telling them, if you're declaring it's wrong, they're not going to want to change. And this is really where, in I'll be the first to admit, I went to couples counseling and I learned about I statements. Because like you said, when I said, you're mean, uh, nobody responded. When I said, you're hurting my feelings or my feelings are hurt or I get upset when you, th- this really changed the dynamic a lot. Right. And it's not selfish. <laughs> One of the things you said earlier was that they feel that they're not allowed to have certain feelings. Where does that come from? Why do we get that impression? Oh, this is what makes my job so much fun. I love finding that out. It tends to be something along the lines of a parent. It's not about blaming your parents, by the way. People get upset with me, but you have to understand the foundation. You have to understand where this comes from in order to change it. So typically, they, they grew up in a household where that emotion wasn't expressed at all or was expressed inappropriately. And those two very broad generalizations are what causes somebody to think that they're not allowed to have them. Hmm. 
if they have them, it's going to cause a tremendous problem. It's going to drive everybody away. I guess it's probably a more accurate way of saying it. Got it. Got it. I, I do realize that, you know, our parents have great amounts of influence on us. And, and uh, you know, our parents love to take credit when things go well. You, you know, you, you went to college, you're a success, you became a doctor, that's all me. But you have trouble setting boundaries or you're a pushover or you yell when you're angry or you get angry at nonsense. Uh, I don't know where you pick that up. Is, is it kind of like that, that our parents like to take credit for our success and sort of move away from our failure, which means it's our fault? I, I do think some parents are really clueless. They just, not clueless. They, they don't, it's unconscious for them and it's unconscious hmm. for my patients when they come. They don't realize that anger is a normal, there's no such thing as a right or wrong thought or feeling. And I have to teach them to believe that's true. Their parents may have had no idea that the fact that they had arguments in front of the children somehow detrimental or somehow got the child to believe that if you ever show anger, you, you know, you're going to get divorced. Um, but the child comes into it with a certain personality and a certain sensitivity, and they interpret it that way. So it's not always just the scenario in the household. It's how the child interprets it. And that's why siblings say, we were raised exactly the same. No, no, you weren't. It's impossible. So you come in with a certain, they come in with a certain predisposition to this. Or maybe parents did fight in front of each other, but the parent came back and said, hey, listen, and talked the kids through it. We are angry now, but part of being in a relationship and we're wearing it over it and it's going to be okay. And then the child can take that and not turn anger into the problem, but realize it's what you do with the anger that is the problem. See, that's a, that's a really profound point that you just made, it, especially in my life, to self-disclose a little bit. You know, my, my, my dad has a temper. Uh, not so much anymore. He's, he's calmed down a lot since retirement. Love you, dad. But when we were younger, you know, my dad had a, a shift job. You know, he'd, he'd stay up all night and he, he was constantly changing. And he really did have a hair trigger. And my, my parents would fight. And my dad's hair trigger would go off in front of everybody. My mom would yell. She'd set her boundary. They'd get in a big fight. And for years, we never saw them make up. Now, we knew they made up because everything would be fine later. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that, obviously, in the moment, my dad was willing to yell. But later, he would apologize. He would make up. He, you know, they, they would come back together in some way. But for whatever reason, my parents didn't mind arguing in front of the children but they had a problem apologizing in front of the children. They probably didn't even realize they were doing this. Right, exactly. And I believe for the longest time that fighting was what adults did. (laughs) Oh my God. A lot of us have grown up that way, yeah. Yeah. This is kind of off on a different tangent, but what a lot of people don't realize is when they do that sort of thing, they are giving their children a very, very bad impression of what a relationship is like. And these kids will grow up to repeat that same kind of behavior frequently. Also, you have, because fighting is a part of a relationship, and it's really the not making up or not coming back to discuss it with, especially a young child, yeah. that is the problem. Yeah. Right. I just thought it was a, a very interesting point that you brought up that, you know, my parents didn't do this intentionally. And listen, my parents have been married for, you know, almost 40 years at this point. Uh, frankly, now that I'm an adult... I really understand their marriage differently. And I realize how, you know, they, they have a very good, caring, supportive marriage, especially from where they both came from, not to fall down a rabbit hole. But, you know, my, my father adopted me. Uh, my mother had a child when they met. And these are very good things. They went on to have more children. and But it was interesting that the exposure of negativity was just right out there. And the positivity or the coming together and the making up was hidden. But to your point... 
you know, they, they saw this as moving it back behind the curtain and then it's repeated, but it's, it's not repeated. The entire cycle isn't seen, which means you're getting half of the story. Right. So a lot of my patients will take scenarios like that and say, anger is the problem because it's so dangerous for a child. I mean, it's life-threatening for a child to see any flaw in their parents because obviously children depend on their parents for their survival. So a lot of children will interpret, oh, anger is the problem. My gotcha. parents aren't handling it. It's not that they have a flaw in handling it. So they then take that into adulthood and I can never have any anger. They can't admit it to themselves. They can't ever say it. <laughs> and it's just, it's like a splinter. You know, it's not the splinter that's the problem. It's the infection or the blister surrounding the splinter that causes all the problems. We'll be right back after hearing from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions. Plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Welcome back, everyone. We're talking about selfishness in relationships with Dr. Laura Dabney. So let's get to the point here. How is it helpful to be selfish in a relationship? We sit here and all they really, really want to talk about everybody else in their lives and all the problems that they're causing. I have to get them to sit with themselves and be selfish, self-centered, to sit and talk about themselves to learn what is the, what are those feelings? What is the history? Why are they, they become taboo? And then we have to do the very hard work of once they're able to name this symptom, to name the feeling, I mean, then they have to be able to express it because those are two separate, very, very difficult tasks. One is to admit that they're angry, angry, sad, or needy, by the way, it's those three, or, and then be able to tell their loved one in a, you know, in a, an empathic way, I'm really angry when you do that. I need you to please stop. That can take months to years to get them to do that. So once they're able to really know themselves and really be able to express themselves, then they get to have that beautiful verbal intercourse of list, then listening to their significant other's viewpoint and feelings and then coming up with a compromise. That's the intimacy we have between sex, you know, that being able to, okay, we have a problem, we're going to solve this problem, and now you and your significant other have a relationship. This is where the relationship is at the heart of it. It's interesting that you said that being selfish is a good thing, but if that's what being selfish is, then I agree, but I, I don't think that that's how most people understand selfishness. I, I think that most people understand selfishness as, you know, not sharing or not communicating or being, uh, you know, disinterested or not going to the restaurant that I like or seeing the movies that I want to see or participating in activities that I like, like no compromising is what most people see as selfishness. I don't know about that. That's where we have so much fun with my patients to say, where's that line? Where's that self-aware? And it re are any of those things really wrong? Or is it that they're not expressing it that, that, you know, I really want to go to the movies by myself. Is there some way we can work this out? I really like doing that. It helps my stress. It helps me feel better. I'll go with you sometimes. So it's not really those things that are selfish. And that's what my patients come in they, because they are so convinced themselves that any thought of wanting to do something themselves is selfish. I use it that way as a challenge to them of, it's not that that's selfish. It's not that, it's no thought, again, thought or feeling. It's not wanting to do any of that stuff that's selfish. It's when and how you carry it out that makes it negative, whether it's selfish, lazy, mean, cruel. You know, th these are all very fine lines, but it really, it, 
depends on how the other person is taking it. Someone else could say, you know, you, you working overtime is selfish, even though you might be doing it for the family or for a trip to take together. Again, it isn't the things that they're doing that on their behalf or they're doing by themselves that's the problem. It's the fact that they often don't communicate it. They don't understand it themselves. They're trying to go around it. it it's all that. Well, I think that's a key point there. But as Gabe was saying, that we grow up thinking that X, Y, or Z is, is a selfish act and therefore wrong, or even a selfish thought and therefore wrong. Understanding the difference between the thought itself and the execution of it is really critical. And I don't think many of us really take a lot of time to think about that. That's exactly it in a nutshell right there. It's, it's just like lazy. We have the same discussion about lazy. You know, I can't just sit around and be lazy. Like, well, why did the government make it mandatory to have lunch breaks and coffee breaks? There's a fine line there. So what's what you do with that sitting around? If, let's say you sit around and you don't listen to your spouse then say, you know, you don't, it's really annoying that you're not helping me out with the chores on the Sunday. Well, then it is lazy, or it is somehow detrimental in some way. But just sitting around isn't lazy. Just like doing something you want to do for yourself isn't selfish necessarily. It, it's interesting because I, I can hear an argument devolve into what the definition of selfish is. And I imagine that maybe you see patients that are, that are at that level. They're just, they're arguing about the meaning of words, or maybe they're throwing out words and concepts that they don't fully understand. Like back to the beginning of our show where isn't being selfish, being narcissistic. And you were like, well, well, no, not, not even close, but people believe this. Oh, I know. At the heart of the emotional and relationship problems that they have, they come in and they have a long list. It isn't just selfish. Believe me. It's like this long list of things. I am not hatred. I mean, how many times you heard parents say, oh, we don't say hate. We don't, we don't say Mm -hmm. hate. Well, hating someone's a normal feeling. People have hate all the time. And so you hear you say that to a kid enough, and they think, well, if something's wrong, make me, my mother gets very anxious and upset when I say hate, so I can't even think hate. i got to erase that from my mind. Well, you can't erase thoughts and feelings from your mind, A. And B, all feelings need oxygen to dissipate. All feelings need to be felt and dealt with for them to go away. This is why every culture around the whole globe has uh, funeral rites and passages and services, because not that we love to sit around and cry, but we encourage each other to do that because we know inherently that that's how the grief is going to dissipate. That's actually a very interesting point. You're right. People do handle grief differently. And Sometimes we judge how people are handling grief. We say, well, that is not how somebody should react when their right. you know, mom, spouse, et cetera, dies, because we have our own beliefs on how grief should look. Exactly. Just like we'll see somebody doing something from themselves and say, oh, they're selfish, or they're narcissist, or, or they're over the top with their grief, or not grieving enough. Exactly. So it's that judgment, judging them of how they're handling it. But really, that's a very intimate, that's where, that's where intimacy is. We don't talk to strangers on the street about our grief, our sadness, our anger, selfish ideas, or what have you. We save that for our closest people in our lives, especially our significant other. So they're the ones we need to open up and be able to talk to about them. And if we don't understand them ourselves or we think they're off limits, we're not going to be able to talk to our significant other about them. I, I can really see the the challenges that you as a practitioner would have, again, if people really just don't understand the rules of engagement, uh, because what you're really talking about are, are, you know, setting boundaries and setting the rules for your relationship, and everybody has uh, all of these different feelings. But one of the questions I want to ask you is just, why is boundary setting so important? 
Well, so if people come with a relationship problem, either they're doing something destructive or they're not stopping destructive behavior in their lives. I mean, that's, again, very broad, but people who come in and say, I'm doing something destructive, I'm texting, I'm, I'm flirting with my secretary, I'm, you know, whatever, they, that's okay, that I can help them. But it's people who come to me saying that somebody else is doing something destructive and they're not setting a boundary. So it's like, it's enabling. So I have to then get them to see, okay, you can't change him. In fact, I got good news for you. <laughs> you can't change somebody else, but you can do something. And then I have to go through the whole boundary thing. But again, a lot of people have compared setting a boundary to being mean, going to drive somebody away. I'm, I'm not allowed. It's selfish for me to set a boundary. Who am I to say, don't have, I don't know, a fifth of whiskey every night or whatever it is. So we have, then that's when we have the talk about boundaries. Just out of curiosity, what would you say to somebody? I mean, if I said, who's for me to say that my wife can't sext her secretary? That, that's, that I, I, can't, I can't say that. Your response to me would be... How does it make you feel when you sex the secretary? <laughs> I mean, it makes me feel terrible. No, and, and just, just FYI, my, my wife is not doing this. It's just, it's kind of curious because I think we all sort of fall into this, just right. probably not as big as secretaries, but we, we get upset at, you know, maybe little jokes or the behavior of, and we think, well, I'm being too sensitive or I'm being too needy or I, I'm just going to let this one go because overall this person is a good spouse, friend, business partner, whatever. So you've got kind of a hard job there because you've got to convince them that it's in the relationship's best interest for them to do the thing that they are sort of arguing with you that they shouldn't do. How do you turn well, that around? So we're back to the beginning again. So we're back to, they say, you know, he's sexting so-and-so and all the time and on his phone, blah, blah, blah. How does it make you feel? And, they, and then a lot of times I literally have to, because they can't tell me because they've walled it off. So I have to say, okay, here are some feeling words, needy, sad, joyful. And they'll go, needy, I feel need, like I need his attention. Okay, what keeps you from telling him? Instead of telling him you can't sext or text anymore, I need your attention after dinner for a few hours. I can't have you on the phone with other women or other people. It makes me feel very left out and abandoned. What about the straight up deal breakers? And, and you know, un unfortunately, we kind of went a little south picking something as big as what most relationships are not okay with, with, with cheating. And I mean, what about like the hard stops? What about the, no, if you continue doing this, then I'm not going to stick around. How do you handle those? Because people still feel badly about enforcing even what I think most people would consider reasonable boundaries. But that's those people have trouble with aggression. So that's the same as anger. Or, so there's constructive aggression and destructive aggression. There's some people who feel that all aggression is bad. Like, but okay. what about going for a gold medal? What about avoiding a rabbit in the road? Those are all take aggression to do. They're like, oh, I never thought about that. So if your relationship is being hurt by somebody doing something and you say first, I feel X when you do Y. is the template I give everybody. I feel X when you do Y. And they go, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. And they stop. Great. If they don't, you have to increase the aggression because it's your agenda. It's bothering you. Some people get really upset when I've said it once and they should do it forever. It's like, well, no, it's not his agenda. He doesn't know it hurts you when he wears blue. You have to remind him that's upping the aggression. Listen, I've told you now a couple times that this is hurtful to me and you keep doing it. So we need to do something about this. And they go, oh, I'll stop us up. Well, the problem is I don't trust you're going to stop now. So whatever it is, I think we're going to need to go talk to somebody about this behavior because you're not able to control it. And it's destroying our, my trust in you. And thus it's destroying our relationship. 
So that's increasing the aggression. It's constructive aggression because you're holding the relationship together. You're not bearing that resentment, which then sits there like a lump and you carry around, you know, like a ball and chain. And then eventually it'll seep out in the form of maybe imploding. That's where people start, you know, suicidal or something hurting themselves in some way. Or they explode and they just, in opportune moment, explode over something tiny because they didn't up the aggression. They didn't push that agenda. So you ever have situations where you'll have one person say, well, here's my relationship problem. My spouse is saying that I'm doing this, that I'm, I'm too needy or I'm too this or that or the other thing. And once you get all of the details, you think to yourself, yeah, you are. How do you address that? Well, needy is a normal feeling, so I never say that. Well, <laughs> needy just be one example, but so I mean, I don't know how to. Um, I don't know how. I maybe give me another example of. So if someone says you're too needy, or this the other person. Well, you know, need, neediness can go too far and become clinginess, and then suffocation, and and all of those fun things. So. I guess that's yeah, where I was just going. Like with anger it. can lead to murder, but it's not right. a problem. So, you, so right. you have, that's when the person has to be empathic and say, "Listen, I feel like I need your attention after dinner. Can can you please give me at least an hour to sit and talk with me, or whatever?" That's when the other guy says, "Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I just after dinner is my time to unwind by myself, and I like to get to my whatever and do that. So, can we compromise? That's where the compromise. That's the verbal intercourse right there." So someone says, mm -hmm. I need this. The other person says, oh, I need that, actually. Then they should stand back together, look at what's on the table. I call it nobody has to die. So you have your need, the person has <laughs> their need, and you say, what are we going to do about that? And that's the beauty. That's what people are missing. This, that's the intimacy. Oh, well, this is our compromise. My mentor um, gave me the great example of this. He had a, um, His wife went back to, to law school when they had a young son, and he uh, my mentor thought that it was damaging to their son that their mother wasn't home. She had to work late, late nights and was not home for dinner. And so he said, look, I really miss you. Our son misses you. You know, what are we going to do? And she said, well, I need to stay at work in order to make partner and blah, blah. So they came up with the compromise that they, he would put their son down for a nap in the evening. And then when the wife came home at eight, they would eat and they put the kid down at midnight. He said, nobody in their right mind would ever say, let's put the kid down at midnight. <laughs> but they, because that was their compromise, that was what their family did. It worked out great for them. And actually their son turned out to be a really amazing person. So but that's a great example of where they had to come up with their own rules, their own ideas to get something to work for the family. They had to do what was best for their relationship and not worry about all of the other relationships or what other people may think. Yes, bingo. <laughs> I guess I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about healthy relationships. And if your relationship is healthy, what are some things that just occur naturally? I mean, does anything occur naturally? What do you not have to ask for in your partner? What will just be there in a healthy relationship? I think what should what will be there in a healthy relationship is someone will be very comfortable with their feelings and very empathic of their partner's feelings. And it's sort of intuitive then to have those both on the table and compromise. So they do it more fluidly. It's not that they don't have any anger, they don't have neediness, they don't have sadness, or things aren't working out. It's not that they don't have the feelings. They just trust that they will be able to work out those feelings with their partner. That becomes more fluid. That sounds fair. I'm wondering if I've ever experienced that. <laughs> well, then you and I are not good people to discuss healthy relationships. We're... We really are not. <laughs> we really are not. I've got some time slots next week. <laughs> Call in. 
Oh, you are very, very awesome. We really appreciate you being on the show. We're, we're really near the end. Do you have any, you know, words of wisdom, some, what information have we not covered that we really just want to leave the listeners with? Well, I like to always leave with a red flag statement. You know, there are people who cannot be in relationships and this is a surprise for some people. There are people who cannot do intimacy because they cannot do the inside. There are people who have trouble doing it but they come in and they can learn, but there are actually people who cannot learn. They, they are afraid of intimacy on some unconscious level. They start to get close and then they sabotage it in some way. And then they don't want to be abandoned and they come back. And then, so that you, I'm sure you've known couples like this where they just can't get it together. I always advise, you know, if it's a red flag, you got to leave. Hopefully leave before the marriage. But if you're married and it's a red flag situation, instead of trying to change that person, there's some people you, you just can't get an intimate relationship with and you got to go. Well, thank you so much. And, and where can people find you online? So my website's lauradabney.com. Instagram's lauradabney.com. Facebook is lauradabneymd. And you can always do the old-fashioned, give me a call at 757-340-8800. Well, we love that. Thank you so much for being on our show. We really, really appreciate it. Yes, thank it. you. Thank you, guys. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.